Peter's been on the job for 20 years. He's got the uniform. He's got the office in the basement behind the laundry room. He's got the keys. That's a lot of crap on there, but hey. Let's just count them. basically count them. Yeah. All right, so you got your one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven. This is a key ring that is so big that it not only has tons of keys, it also has smaller, baby key rings, subsidiary key rings hanging off of it, each with its own keys. And almost none of these keys has any kind of label indicating what it is that it opens. And you know, if you've ever seen a guy carrying this kind of thing, you've wondered, okay, well, how does he remember which key goes to which lock? Oh, wait a second. Peter's nearly done counting. 45, 46, 47, 48, 49. It's about 50 keys. He actually skipped a lot of keys. Anyway, I was saying... If you ever wondered how he remembers which key goes to which thing, Peter says three-fourths of these keys, he has no idea what they're for. Every time I change a lock or, you know, I get a new key to this or that, it just gets added on there. Never took the time to take the old ones off. Practical. Above all, Peter is a practical man. In his line of work, that's essential. He's a super. In charge of keeping the elevators humming and the boiler going and the roof from leaking and the sidewalks clean and a hundred other things every single day. He works at a fancy building on New York's Upper East Side. Or maybe I should say it's a, a medium fancy building. Fancy enough that Woody Allen and Mayor Giuliani shop for apartments there, but not fancy enough that they actually moved in. To hold a job like this for very long, even in a medium fancy building, you have to sweat the details of everything. My compactor room, a woman could give birth, no infection would set in. Come, I'll show you. He uses a key from the part of the keychain where he knows what's going on, and suddenly we're in an immaculate room with concrete floors. Oh, my God, it's so wonderful in here. And this is the garbage room. It doesn't smell like garbage. No. You want to go up to the roof and oil the circulation pumps with me? That really has to be the worst pickup line ever. We drop by the pump room to check some gauges, and then we head back into the elevator and pass one of the doormen who works for Peter. Martin, your parole officer called. Give him a call. Martin smiles. The doors close. So can you joke around with the tenants in this building? Not like that. No, you don't want to go there. I'm pretty friendly with some of them, but there's a line. Yeah. I tell these guys, you got to keep it short and sweet. You know, good morning, good evening. How about them Knicks? (laughs) You know, happy holidays. Martin's kind of new. He wanted to say happy Hanukkah to a few people. I said, no, 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 no. No Merry Christmas, no happy Hanukkah. It's happy holidays. Oh, but uh, I said, no, you're going to miss. You're going to miss. I'm telling you, you're going to miss. <laughs> you're going to throw one the wrong way, and it's going to come back. It's delicate dealing with the tenants. Surprisingly delicate. You know, people in the building gossip about him, then he's got his own secret thoughts about them, too. Well, today on our program, we have stories of the super. He sees everybody come and go. He knows way more about the tenants than they know about him. I mean, Peter has a security camera, for God's sake. He's on call 24 hours a day. He's both a figure of authority and kind of an in-house servant. From WBEZ Chicago, is This American Life, I'm Ira Glass. Our show today in three acts, three very dramatic acts, actually. Starting, let's just get right to it, starting with this one from Jack Hitt. This act is like an epic novel with plot twists and unforeseen danger and bizarre coincidences and unlikely heroes and even more unlikely bad guys. Here's Jack. During New York City's great crime wave of the 1980s, getting an apartment was simple. All you had to do was commit a crime. 
we, we had heard from a friend of a friend that if we went down and gave key money, uh, that is to say one month's rent, it's the going fee, uh, to this superintendent, that is to say Bob, uh, that we would be able to get an apartment. This is my friend Kevin. He and I got our apartments in the same building on 99th Street in the early 80s by bribing the same superintendent, a guy named Bob. These were old beat-up flats with screaming radiators and warped floors and exposed pipes. A city engineer once inspected the building and declared that it was six stories of dust held up by a hundred years of paint. These were our first New York apartments. We were there to start our lives. New York was all romance and everything was outsized and outrageous. The buildings in Midtown, our ambition, the nightlife, and as we quickly discovered, our super, Bob. All sorts of things about him were truly spectacular. Like, for example, the way he repaired our apartments. Here's Chris, another tenant in the building. After we got burglarized, Bob put in safety gates for the fire escape, which he welded so that nobody could get in, but you couldn't get out in a fire either. There was no (laughs) way to open them. told us that they were installing sliding revolving doors, (laughs) which I mean, he never explained what those were, but I do remember like, like thinking to myself, how can he say they're sliding revolving doors? But he said it was such a totally straight face. Bob's work habits were a thing of wonder. I remember one time Bob showed up with his assistant, a generally talented guy named Smitty. My sink was backed up, and Bob started pouring this heavy black liquid from a gallon jug into the standing water. Smitty started backing up, and with experience as my guide, I started backing up too. One cup, Smitty yelled. Just one cup. Shut up, Bob explained, and he emptied the entire jug into the water. There were nasty rumblings. Hot chemical reactions were happening somewhere in the walls. I was very scared, and suddenly the doors below the sink where I kept my cleaning stuff... They blew open with an explosion, and this unspeakable oily sludge poured out across the kitchen floor. Bob was so much more than just a bad handyman. Very early on, I began to perceive Bob's talents as a fabulist. Uh, you know, it, it, you know, it was really painful to go down and pay the rent every month because you had to give it to him, which meant you had to stand there and listen to, you know, 10, 15, 20 minutes of completely insane stories. Uh, a big running theme was Bob's importance in uh, the world in general, and particularly in Brazil. I definitely remember his cattle ranch stories. This is Anne, another tenant during those early days, and now married to Chris. He had seven cattle ranches. Four cattle ranches he owned in Brazil and the seven vineyards he had in Italy. Or it might have been seven cattle ranches in Brazil and four vineyards in Italy. If, if you actually took him, if after he left the room and you thought about what he said, you'd think, why is he living here? Because he was like, you know, a, basically a king. You know, when you know, the village people would just welcome him. He claimed that there was a um, clause in the Constitution of Brazil that uh, gave him immunity from any, any prosecution whatsoever. Um, and that, in fact, he could, he could as he put it, uh, go and kill the president of the Brazilian state and he would still be immune from prosecution.
course, Bob, being Bob, had an explanation for how he went from being a South American cattle baron to a New York City super. He had had two heart attacks. Uh, and his doctor had had had. This is an actual an actual story. His doctor had prescribed that he uh, gain a lot of weight and uh, and and move to America. So probably the first time in medical history that that uh, that enormous weight gain was prescribed for a heart condition. In his own way, Bob united the building. All of us the elderly black businessman, the Puerto Rican grandmother, the handsome Bombay immigrant, me, the southerner in exile. We all had our favorite Bob stories. We all did our own impersonations of Bob. It was impossible not to try to out-Bob whoever was talking with an even more outlandish Bob story of your own. We collected and traded Bob stories, comparing versions, analyzing his technique. He was remarkably unfazed by any show of skepticism <laughs> about these stories. Uh, there was a story about how uh, he had once hung a bag of acid from the roof of the building to chase away the various homeless men who would, in, in those days, often come and, and uh, congregate by the, uh, by the, edge, by the corner yeah. of this building. Um, Bob had supposedly hung a bag of acid from the top that would drip down steadily on him. Now, I have no idea how you hang a bag of acid, how you get the acid in the bag and put that up there. Uh, that's a, that no, no small feat in itself. But of course, the, the best part is Bob is telling us the story at the very same time that you could lean out of the office where he's talking and see the three or four homeless guys sitting, <laughs> sitting on the corner. Sitting right there. Uh, uh, apparently completely unscarred or bothered by dripping acid. The other story that I've, uh, I always found really captured just sort of like all of Bob's essence for me was when um, every kitchen in this building has these funny circular fluorescent bulbs, right. very um, specialized, you know, uh, light bulbs. They're also in the hallways uh, out in the uh, on the first floor. Yeah. And mine, after 10 years of noble service, finally burnt out. And I looked at it and I thought, huh. Where do you buy one of those? So I trotted on down to Bob's office one morning, and I said, Bob, you know, the light bulb in my kitchen is burned out, and I'm just wondering, do, do I buy that and replace it? And if so, where do you buy them? Or, or do you all just replace that for me? And, of course, he went into this total Bob terror. He's like, yeah. yes, that's right. You, let me tell you something, mister. Don't try to steal one of the light bulbs in the hallway. I know what you're thinking, but I've booby-trapped them. And if you climb up there and you try to take the light bulb, it will blow up and shoot the glass in your eyes and you will be blind for all time. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and I said, I remember saying, so uh, I take that to mean that I have to buy the bulb myself. <laughs> The very opposite of Bob was Alan, the landlord. If Bob was larger than life, Alan was smack in the middle, the average percentile. He had a family. He lived in White Plains. I'd met his wife. Doing business with Alan was a completely routine experience. If it was a toilet to be fixed, he'd make sure the crew got there on time and got it done. Even in our biggest blowouts, he was always reasonable, civil even. One time things got a little testy, when Alan started neglecting the old Puerto Rican folks in the building. I'd become friendly with one grandmother who showed me her tub full of green stagnant bath water. 
Alan and I had some tense words, and I and some others even held meetings to start a rent strike. But in the end, Alan gracefully withdrew, and we all went back to normal business, back to Bob, the inscrutable, endless mystery that was Bob. Fast forward to 1989. I'd been in my apartment eight years. I had a steady job, and I was walking to work one morning. Somewhere along the way, I saw the Daily News blaring the latest tabloid crime story. Headline, Terror Landlord. I looked closer and realized it was Alan. My Alan. The landlord. The nice guy whose kids I knew. The story was incredible. He had been arrested for murder, for hiring hitmen to kill his brother-in-law, Arthur Katz, in 1980. And, as the story got out, it quickly became clear that Bob was the one who had ratted Alan out. Alan was found guilty and sentenced to 25 years to life in prison, where he remains today. More time passed. I got a new apartment in the West Village. Then I got married, had children, and later moved to another state, where Alan and Bob became memories, proof that I lived in New York back when crack was king and the murder rates topped 2,000 a year. In the late 90s, almost a decade after I'd last seen Bob or Alan, I was working on an investigative piece about money laundering, and a source at the Treasury Department had suggested I call this really smart prosecutor in New York named John Moscow. So I rang him up and started just yakking the way you do. I asked him if he'd handled financial crime a lot, and he was quick to say that he'd worked homicide in New York back in the 80s during the crime wave when crack was king and the murder rates topped 2,000 a year. Yeah, I said. I lived there, too. I told him I was actually involved in one of those tabloid stories, mine involving a landlord who'd hired contract killers to murder his brother-in-law and then gets ratted out by the super. There was a peculiar pause on the phone. Then Moscow said, Alan Stern, West 99th Street? I'm the guy who put him behind bars. Right away, of course, we started talking about Bob. I told him the light bulb story, Moscow had a good laugh, and then I went on, in the way we residents of 99th Street can do, and finally got to the one about Bob claiming that he had a special exemption from the Brazilian Constitution and could murder anyone in Brazil. Again, there was that odd Moscow pause, and then he said, yeah, the thing is, that one's kind of true. I asked him, um, when you were in the military, what were you, where were you assigned? I was in the military police. Here's John Moscow describing Bob's testimony on the witness stand. And what was your job? My job was to locate, interrogate, and execute politically unreliable persons. Get out of here. <laughs> um, Bob had been in the death squad in Brazil, and he was asked, did you kill any people while you were there? Yes. Was it more than one? Yes. Was it more than five? I don't know. What do you mean you don't know? Well, if you shoot somebody at long range and they go down, you don't know if they're dead or wounded. There comes a point when you realize that beneath all of the fanciful stories, there usually is a substantial amount of truth. He said he came north for his health and perhaps to protect his heart, but he was thinking about high-impact lead poisoning. (laughs) (laughs) 
Uh, apparently a number of, you know, he was in his 20s when he was in the death squad. And he realized at one point that a substantial number of people in his squad were dead of violent causes, which would be consistent either with their being suicidal and the risks they took, or um, with somebody having a list of the names and where they were located, someone whose relatives had been mishandled. So he decided that leaving was good for his health. <laughs> All those crazy Bob stories we swapped for years, who'd have thought that the truth about Bob would be just as crazy? According to Moscow, not only had Bob been in a death squad, but he had been a key figure in the murder of Alan's brother-in-law. Bob was crucial in securing the talents of the two hitmen, named Sammy Feet and Crazy Joe. And according to the court documents, Bob was in the boiler room with some of his crew when news of the hit came down. They celebrated with Martini and Rossi, and things really got going when a portable radio just happened to belt out that Queen song. You know the one. Another one bites the dust, and another one gone, and another one gone, another one bites the dust, yeah. The hit was just one of numerous crimes, brilliant crimes really, that Bob and Alan pulled off from that little office. It turns out that when it comes to crime, Bob was incredibly competent. He and Allen set up dummy construction companies. They defrauded the state with counterfeit charges. To force out one tenant, they rewired the electrical outlets to high-voltage lines to fry all the apartment appliances. My favorite was their natural gas scam. They put fake cones out on the street and actually jackhammered through the asphalt to a working gas line. They bypassed the meters and in time eliminated more than $800,000 of Allen's gas bills. On top of all this, Bob helped the prosecution snare Allen. Bob tapped Allen's phones. Bob wore a wire. And in court transcripts, Allen calmly weighs the relative merits of buying off some people versus having them killed. And this is what really comes across when you talk to Moscow, just how wrong all of us were at sizing up Bob and Allen. When we had 2,200 homicides in New York as opposed to fewer than 500, which is what we're on for this year, you had a lot of people talking about killing people. There was a certain rationality and cold-bloodedness about this murder that was just plain different. And I just, Bob testified under oath at trial. Mm -hmm. I watched him when he was being cross-examined and I don't think I'll ever forget defense counsel asked him, did you torture men or women? And he said, my specialty was men. And the way he said it, my blood felt about 10 degrees colder. And I, there was just absolute... Um, the, the courtroom, everyone was persuaded that he meant it. So how did Bob, former Brazilian death squad officer, rat out Alan? Bob, I think, called tips to report the murder. Tips? Right. 
You mean like the one eight hundred number or what? The local crime yeah, reporting seven, seven tips or whatever. Yeah. So he he calls that, and then he goes and make, makes an appointment and meets with the major case squad. What 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 drove him to turn Allen in? Allen and his family had discussed selling the building and moving to Florida. And in the course of that, Allen had discussed having the president and the vice president of the Tenants Association murdered. Mm. And Bob figured that Allen was going to have these two guys whacked and blame Bob. What, what year was this? This was 1988. Now, I only, only bring that up because um, <clears throat> there was a, there was an, uh, at one point there was a, a, a rent strike that was going to be put together in my building. And I was the tenant leader. Of that, I mean, was that the rent problem that Alan was uh, upset about? Unless there was another rent strike. Wow. So, so Alan might have actually tried to get me whacked. Mm-hmm. Ultimately, Bob went into the police station and admitted his own role in a murder and thought he was going to prison. Because his perception at the time was that Alan would cause these murders to take place. And so he protected himself by ratting Alan out first. So Bob turning state's evidence basically saved my life or the life of the tenant organizers. That was Bob's thought. I found Bob. I reached him on the phone, and we had a nice chat. He remembers me as the tall blonde guy on the first floor. He wanted to talk to me for this story, but his lawyer told him, not today, or ever. And then Bob suggested that I not bother to call back. I wanted to ask him about the cattle ranches and being written into the Constitution and give those stories a fresh listen, knowing what I know now. And of course, I wanted to know whether I was the one who was going to get whacked. I wasn't the only tenant organizer in the building at the time. But I'll never get that answer now. All I have is another Bob story, full of details I can't confirm. But so delicious that I can't wait to go back to my old pals and tell it to them. So this is uh, one of the lawyers talking to Bob during the trial. When you began your testimony on direct yesterday, you told us about your military experience in Brazil. I would like to go Chris back and Anne live in Queens now. now I read to them the court transcripts that John Moscow had told one. me about. Yes, more than one. Was it more than ten? More than ten. All right, let's go on. Did you torture both men and women? My specialty was men. Holy! <laughs> wait, but did, was he really okay? Let me, no, I, this, this is the testimony that you know. This is un, I mean, it's under oath. That, I, you've taken it to a whole new level, sir. <laughs> Holy <laughs> scary. Whoa. It's so, I mean, you know, but it does make you go sort of go back and rethink like the whole pattern of like exchanges you had with him. I never commun like I never said to myself, there's some reality to who this guy says he is. Who, I mean, I, I used to get furious at him. But, like, to think, oh, I was talking to, like, a murdering torturer. He was definitely toying with us. Yeah, the but whole now it's, it's like a different level of toying. Yeah, no, you know, like, you're, 
instead of just being some ass it's like he's a professional. Absolutely. I, I feel like I'm, I'm sitting here amazed now that we weren't killed and tortured. <laughs> no, I, we were only no, psychologically I, tortured. But he, he, I mean, we, this, this could have been a very horrible story. You know what? Our, cur <laughs> our current super is looking much better. <laughs> It doesn't surprise me in a way. Again, here's Kevin. You know, I mean, it's like, you know, talk, it's, talk about the banality of evil. You know, he strikes me as one of these, you know, one of these Eichmann um, type characters who, who would, uh, in certain contexts, uh, do completely awful, disgusting things. And then if removed from them and put in the, some more peaceful, you know, banal surrounding, would uh, settle back and just be a windy... Uh, a windy superintendent of, of a building, you know. Um, it, it was kind of interesting, though. Like, after this was all over, after he had testified and Alan was put away, um, of course, Alan's uh, daughters, I believe, then owned the buildings. So, of course, Bob lost his, his free apartment and his, uh, his super's position. And it was almost like he kind of deflated. Like, he, you know, nobody had to talk to him anymore. So he would walk around. It was almost pathetic. He'd walk up, you know, down the block and say hi, and people would you know, just kind of go by, you know, nod to him and go by. Um, and uh, and then after a short time after this, he just wasn't around anymore. He was gone. And, at, uh, and I have no idea where he went to. Where is he anyway? Did you find out any of that? Uh, he's an elevator inspector in New York City. <laughs> Good God. <laughs> We're all in trouble now. <laughs> I found Alan also at his website, alanstern.net. He's been appealing his conviction for over 15 years. He makes the case that he's innocent. His argument is that the entire story of Sammy Feet and Crazy Joe and the explanation of the brother-in-law's murder and all the rest of it is hearsay, a grandiose fiction. In other words, Alan is saying he can top us all, that he's the victim of the most outlandish Bob story ever told. Jack Hitt, he now lives in New Haven in a house where he is his own super. He's also the co-host of the Peabody Award-winning podcast, Uncivil. If you haven't heard it seriously, give it a try. He's currently developing a new podcast. It's been many years since we first reported this story. In 2014, Alan Stern was released from prison. Bob, as far as we can tell, is no longer an elevator inspector for the city of New York. John Moscow is now practicing criminal law in Manhattan. Coming up, a super gets a crush. That's in a minute from Chicago Public Radio when our program continues. This American Life, I'm Ira Glass. Each week in our program, we choose a theme and bring you a variety of different kinds of stories on that theme. Today's show, The Super. We have arrived at Act 2 of our show, Act 2, Super Duper. We now move from a story about an East Coast super to a story about a West Coast super from Alex Bloomberg. Josh lives in a Spanish courtyard building in Los Angeles a city in which even apartment buildings act like they're on TV. It's a little bit like Melrose Place, a lot of kind of communal activity. Uh -huh. And sort of presiding above it is the super. It's not really a super like you would have in maybe a larger building or a larger city. 
it's he's um, a larger city than LA. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. I guess like more like an like a dense urban city is what I meant right. to say. Um, but so he doesn't have like a tool belt and show up and fix things, but he'll sort of call the guy who does that, and he takes the rent and and uh, he is kind of a solitary guy for the most part. He's he's sort of likes to spend a lot of time reading and stuff. So he just kind of like hangs out up there in the building. Josh and the rest of the tenants in the building liked their super, whom we'll call Dave, and hung out with him. And at the time of this story, Dave was going through chemotherapy for leukemia. And occasionally he'd call different residents to ask for help with things. And one Christmas, he contacted Josh. He calls and he says, uh, you know, this really weird thing happened. And um, I, I came over to his apartment he had um, this orchid that was sitting on the table next to him, mm-hmm. and he said, "Well, I had this. I had this visitor, and um, it was a very strange visit. And he started to tell me that a couple months ago, in between in between chemotherapy treatments, he'd had two chemotherapy treatments, and so he was out somewhere, and he was in his." Land Cruiser, I think he has. And he was at this gas station, and he sees this woman uh, pulls up in a big black Escalade, and uh, she's on the opposite side of the pumps as him. She was an older woman, but he said very elegant and uh, attractive in the elegant older woman way. And she had fancy clothes and, like, furs, and I think he mentioned that she had espadrilles on. Uh And uh, (laughs) so... um, and she was and she was in this black escalade, so she would seem to be you know classy or something uh or well off and so they're standing there at the pumps and they start chatting. She initiates a conversation with him, and they're getting on very well and then told me that she said something about him being bald, which was from the chemotherapy, and she said, "Are you bald from the chemotherapy uh or are you just bald because you think it's sexy something like that and um he he was not offended by that. He thought it was it was kind of like this uh, romantic repartee or something, and um, and then she gives him uh, a card, and the card was sort of like an old style carte de visite that just had her name. It wasn't a business card that had a company or information on it. It was just sort of like a calling card that you used to, you know, leave at the door of, you know, Count Vronsky's estate when you would stop by or something. And um, so he remembered thinking that that was kind of a a, a classy touch. And very and mysterious. A very mysterious. Uh-huh. And so then he gave her uh, his information, and they parted ways. Until Christmas, two months after their first meeting at the gas station, when the mysterious lady called out of the blue. She'd asked how Dave was, and he'd told her about his recent health problems. An infection from the chemotherapy had turned serious, and he'd spent a couple of weeks in a hospital, in a near coma. That's terrible, the lady said. Is there anything I can do? Can I come by and visit? Dave said yes, and so she'd arrived that morning, dressed in the same elegant manner as at the gas station, bearing the orchid which Dave now had on his table, and they'd sat and chatted. Somehow, the topic of fate came up, and that was the point when... She said, I know this is kind of a weird time, but, you know, I actually have something I wanted to share with you. And, you know, he says, what's that? And she says that she was abroad 
with um, this group of investors who had developed this really interesting investment opportunity. And, you know, she says, I know that this is a weird time, but I, I, this is very exciting, so I feel like I should just let you in on this investment opportunity right now. <laughs> <laughs> he was, you know, a little surprised and, you know, but he said, oh, all right, what, so, you know, what's the investment opportunity? <laughs> and, uh, and she said, well, uh, I've gotten involved with this very canny group of investors, and it seems that they have located this snowman that can bench press 400 pounds. <laughs> what? <laughs> yeah, so... <laughs> so... <laughs> I said... I, so then I'm asking, okay, with the, uh, well, what do you mean? Like, a, what kind of a snowman... <laughs> It's hard to exactly figure out what the proper follow-up question is. <laughs> yeah. I, so then I said, well, okay, what it's so like, it's the abominable snowman. He's like, no, no, no. She said it's a totally normal snowman, like with a carrot nose and a coal for the eyes and a, and a top hat and everything. It's just that this snowman can bench press 400 pounds. <laughs> And so then, but so I'm saying, well, okay, but what? <laughs> what's the what's the investment opportunity? <laughs> like, is he running a hedge fund or what? I mean, I don't understand. And then he said, no. See, what happened is the investors, they've got it all worked out. They they uh, they're gonna put together a variety show with the snowman as the lead act, <laughs> and then they're gonna take the snowman show on tour. And so the investment opportunity is like the geographic territorial rights to the show. So like it, when the show goes to different states, you you get to reap the rewards, you know, if you've bought into the to the rights to the show. So like so the woman said that she had already she got in on the ground floor, you know, with this thing. Uh-huh. She and so she got California and like Nevada, like the West. So he said that the United States was all snapped up. So, but now Indonesia is wide open. And so, and so for, for for the variety show starring the weightlifting snowman. The weightlifting snowman. <laughs> okay. Yeah. So the price for Indonesia's territorial rights to the to the show uh, to the snowman show were not cheap. It was like $30,000 or something. Okay. So, so what I don't understand though is like, if you actually discovered a snowman that had somehow become animated, it seems like the last sort of thing that you would do is then like design a variety show. <laughs> I know. Well, right. I, that's what I was asking him. I said, "Well, listen, wait, hold on a second. Isn't there going to be there's going to be a lot more important things happening than like publicity for your variety show? <laughs> because like the whole world is going to change. Like science will have to readjust everything it's ever known. You know, like right. uh, like all the various theologians of the world are going to have to like deal with like the new like animated snowman world. Right. Like right. they'd have to really sort a lot of things out. Just even the basic question of like, well, how? Did the snowman roll himself up into three balls and find a carrot nose? And, like, 
how, how do the investors find the snowman? That's the other thing that yeah. I was like, curious about. Like, were they driving around the woods and they just saw this snowman lifting logs and they high fived each other and said, "All right, we've got our variety show." You know, like they're in a like in a caravan of black suburbans with their cigars. Like we we did it. The weird thing was, even though Dave found the story of a weightlifting snowman just as preposterous as Josh did, he seemed somehow persuaded by this mysterious woman. He said it was hard to explain, but he felt like he'd known her his entire life. And he looked at life differently now anyway. You know, he said something about how after, you know, when you get cancer or something like that, a serious illness, you just start to reevaluate things, you know. you uh, What might have seemed risky beforehand uh, isn't now. And so he said, you know, I kind of just felt like, uh, you know, maybe there was a reason to take a risk. Like maybe there's a reason I met the woman at the Shell Station and maybe this is a kind of a risk to take. <laughs> and then that's basically when he said, so, you know, I wrote her a check for $30,000. Oh, my God. <laughs> what did you think? I was alarmed and I was worried that it was a con and, you know, obviously. <laughs> right. Um, you know, but I kind of actually was a little bit convinced by his whole theory, you know. <laughs> I was thinking, like, maybe maybe it's not so bad, you know. Right. Thinking, and like, then, it's, sort of, it's sort of his money and... Right. You know, if that's how he's going to, you know, sort of embrace life after cancer, then, you know, who am I to save? Right. So I kind of felt like I, I had to accept that. Over the next year... Josh told the weightlifting snowman story to everybody he could. He loved it. And his audiences seemed to love it, too. At one point, he decided, with Dave's consent, to write it up for a magazine humor section. The final step in publishing it was to have it fact-checked. And so the magazine called Dave. He called me and said, so the, the magazine's fact-checkers called, and uh, I told them what, I, what I'm about to tell you, which is that... I actually made that whole story up. And <laughs> there was no lady with the card, carte de visite or espadrilles or furs or the snowman. Did you ask him why? He just thought that it would be a story that would amuse me. And he was absolutely correct. <laughs> I guess he had no idea how successfully <laughs> that story was going to appeal to me. <laughs> and so, I mean, I kind of bought it, you know. I mean, I... The idea of, like, you live to be, you know, in your middle ages and you kind of never took any risks and then things get totally, the perspective refocuses uh, in such a way that weightlifting snowman makes as much sense as anything else. I kind of like it. You kind of like it that, that, that he created a world in which it made sense to spend $30,000 on a weightlifting yeah, snowman. Yeah, yeah, Huh. <laughs> in, in, in a weird sense, you were the con. <laughs> Yeah, that was, I mean, that was, it was like a double reverse reveal, like at the end of some movie where like, I would have been writing some check for like a million dollars at the end, right? <laughs> right. Because somehow I got sucked into the whole thing. But and you did like, get I... sucked into it. You wanted it so bad. <laughs> I think part of what I love about it, and maybe you do too, is is just sort of the image that like, they're, of the snowman, like this like stick-armed, carrot-nosed snowman actually just like lying on a <laughs> on a on a on a weight bench in the middle of the Siberian wood. Well also bench pressing in particular is like you requires a bench. So like <laughs> I still don't understand like <laughs> you know, if they if let's say they found the snowman in the woods, then did he have his own bench? Was it made out of snow? You know, I just 
You know, he wasn't doing squats. Alex Bloomberg talking with Josh Bierman. These days, Alex runs the podcasting company Gimlet Media, the home of Reply All and Heavyweight and The Nod and many other shows. Josh has been a regular contributor to our show, and these days he's a producer on the new Apple TV series Little America, which comes out next month. Ken Hunter, who was the super who made up that story about the snowman and who had a real talent for telling outrageous and ridiculous stories. Um, there's no easy way to say this. He died a few years ago. Act three, please release me. That's release me. We change the uh, names of the people in this story to protect the tenants involved. Sometimes uh, somebody tells you your future and you do not want to believe it. You can't believe it. When Dennis was 21, he became the super of uh, this apartment building that his dad owned, a big 100-unit building in what was once a rough neighborhood. And his dad gave him this warning, father to son, super to super, about the tenants. They will make a good person bad. Like, you know, maybe you go into, like, the landlording business and you're, you have good intentions and you're a good person. But people, you know, the lies they tell you, the tricks they play on you, the damage they do to your property, you will eventually lose that innocence and become a meaner person. And I was like, wow, you know, like, that kind of sucks. I hope that never happens to me. <laughs> Dennis always figured he'd be a different kind of super than his dad anyway. His dad had been a plumber. Nothing made him happier than fixing the plumbing and the washing machines in the building. And his dad had some old world ways of doing things. If somebody was causing trouble, selling drugs or making a ruckus, he'd pound on doors and get in their face if they had to. The neighborhood was slowly improving, but when he first bought the building, people didn't care what the lease said or didn't say, and he had to deal with a lot of things man to man. Dennis, meanwhile, was just out of college. His dad had scrimped and sacrificed to put him through Catholic schools, all the way from elementary up through his undergraduate degree. His mom, his parents were split up, his mom had always been a devout Catholic, communion every day. And all that stuff that the Jesuits taught Dennis in school about being a good person, he took it to heart. You know, one of the things like going to like the Jesuit University is, is like, you know, they want you to be men and women for others. You know, not that everything I did, I tried to, you know, live up to that high standard because I know I, I couldn't. But, you know, that was definitely in the back of my head. Which brings us to our story. At first, the super job went great. People liked Dennis. He got Christmas cards from families in the building. But there was this one couple. They'd lived in the building for almost 20 years, since back when his dad first bought the place. They were long-term tenants. They were good tenants. They were nice people. You know, in the beginning, there was, it wasn't too much bad you could say about them. And your dad liked them? Yeah, my dad liked them, yeah. He lived below them, actually, so he liked them. Literally lived right below them. In my freshman year of high school, I lived with my father at that, so I lived below them, too, for a year, and so I saw them, and they knew who I was, you know, I mean, even before that, even before high school, you know, when we were little kids, we'd be running around playing in the courtyard, hanging from the trees. But yeah, I mean, I, you know, they were, they were a regular fixture. But everything for this couple changed when their daughter died. The woman quit her job to go to school. They threw all of their savings into that. But she had trouble with the classes, couldn't make the grade. And things just kept going downhill from there. She started drinking. They got behind on their rent. You know, she'd drop off a check to me, and then, you know, I, you know a day later or two days later, she'd call me and say, hey, did you deposit that check yet? And I was like, no, we haven't deposited yet. Well, could you, 
tear off that check and let me, I'll, I'll give you another check, you know, like forget about that check. And so then, you know, we'd tear off that check and she'd bring down another check and then and that check would bounce. And, um, I, you know, I think they got to like maybe like $4,000 in the hole. Oh, wow. So they were, they were behind like $4,000 in like, like six months. Six months. Yeah. yeah. They're behind, half a year behind. Yeah. Wow. You know, I was like, I was like, you know, Dad, we got to kick these people out. You know, I got to get rid of them. And, you know, my dad was very reluctant to do that. He was like, work with them. You know, work it out. Work it with them. You know. Now, why? Like, why? Well, he knew that her husband had a good job, and he knew that, you know, that they had money coming in and that, you know, that you could get money out of them, basically. Oh, it's like, I didn't realize that. Yeah. So it becomes a test of you. The problem wasn't them, because they've got the money. Yeah. The problem is you, yeah, his I mean, son. Like, yeah, so... <laughs> It's like, you know, how good are you? Now, Dennis wanted to do right by his dad. He wanted to do a good job. Remember, he had never had a job before. He was still living with his mom. And now he was in charge of his dad's business. When it came to this couple, he was just flailing around. And he wasn't exactly sure how to get money out of them. But he decided he was going to do it. And he remembered his Jesuit teachers. You know, I thought to myself, I'm like, you know, it wasn't my job to, you know, to ease these people through this or get them through it. But I know that if I was in that situation, if I was down on my luck, that I would want somebody to cut me that break or cut me that slack. So he sat down and he created a payment plan for them. A few hundred bucks every paycheck. But it was incredibly hard to make them stick to it. They had excuses. They couldn't do it. So he sat them down again, and they made up an agreement, and this time they put it in writing. And then, after month upon month of struggle, it took over a year, they finally paid it all back. You know, then things were okay for a while, but uh, slowly but surely started falling back into their own ways. And basically what I think it was was um, uh, like the alcohol, basically. I remember vividly, like, that she would come down to the laundry room. The laundry room was just outside the office. And she would go to the vending machine and buy a can of pop after a can of pop after a can of pop. And I always thought that was so weird. I was like, why is she buying, like, eight cans of Sprite or Coke when we're right next door to Walgreens and she can just go buy a 12-pack? And I think what it was was she was, you know, just, you know, getting Cokes to mix drinks with up in their apartment. I just remember that being so weird. So Dennis watched and worried. He worried a lot. Anybody who knew Dennis at that time would tell you. It was all he talked about. He'd go out with his friends, and this is what would be on his mind. What should he do? Was he being a sucker? What was going on with this couple? It was the kind of worrying that you might expect from a family member or something. But of course, he was just the super, the property manager. And things got worse. At one point, another tenant found the wife passed out in the hallway of the building, lying there like she was dead, covered in vomit. Dennis ran to her side. And I was like, you know, oh my God, you know, what's wrong here? What happened to you? And, uh, you know, she's just like, oh, she can't talk to me. She can't put a sentence together. She's just slurring all her words. And so I was like, you know, what do I do? You know, I'm like, do I take her to the hospital? Do I call an ambulance? You know, like, what do I do? 
And, um, you know, anyway, she's like, I just need to go to bed, you know. And so, like, she was too drunk to basically open her door. So got her into bed, and, um, you know, she's in bed, and she's laying on her back. And I'm like, you know, like, I've heard stories like, this is how Jimi Hendrix died or something like that, you know. And I'm like, is she, you know, what if she pukes again? Is she going to choke on her puke? You know, finally I get a hold of her husband, and he's like, all right, I'll take care of it, I'll take care of it. But, you know, he's at work, and who knows when he's going to get home to take care of this. And, like, you know, I'm down in the office, I'm trying to do work. And so, like, I went back up and checked on her a couple times, and she's sleeping, and, you know, she's breathing. And so then I go back down, and, you know, I can't get any work done because I was like, you know, like, God, if this lady dies, you know, like, you know, I'm never going to forgive myself, you know. I just remember that being, like, a really terrifying experience. It's so weird because part of it is, like, you have this business relationship with these people, but you're but you're there in their in their building, like you're there in in their house, like yeah. you own their house. Yeah, you know. Yeah, and so it's so personal. Yeah. Well, you definitely can't avoid it. So it's um, you know, you've lived side by side with them. You know, it becomes more of a neighbor to neighbor relationship. They were slipping on the rent. They'd plead with them. And it was always something. They had to pay other bills, Christmas or Thanksgiving coming up. They'd ask for extensions. And he was so inside their lives that at one point, he said, sure, they could pay a little later if he could see their tax forms to see what it is that they actually earn. And they showed him. $50,000 a year, which totally got under his skin. I was like, you know what? Why can't they pay me? And I started basically putting pen to paper and running some numbers. And... I say to the lady, I'm like, look, come down to the office, bring your bills, and we'll do a budget, and I'll show you that you can afford to pay your rent. And after we literally, like, picked every little nitpicky thing there could be money that they could, you know, spend money on, like, kitty litter, uh, you know, laundry, (laughs) transportation to and from work for her husband, we had, like, $3,000 left over, and I was like, look, you can afford this apartment. So did that help? Did, did they end up uh, paying the rent on time for the few months after that? Um, no, it didn't help. Wow, that's quite a lesson yeah. right there. Yeah. It, yeah. Was, it, it ended up getting really frustrating. In the end, I was losing my patience and I was getting really, really mad. She, you know, she started running out of excuses and she'd be like, well, you know, my husband borrowed money from people at work and, you know, he's got to pay them back. And, and, you know, that made me really mad. I was like, I was like, look, you know what? You guys have been taking advantage of me. You've been playing me like a fiddle, and that's it. I'm not taking a back seat anymore. You guys get caught up. You start paying on time, or I'm going to kick you out. And so I was in July and August telling them, I'm like, look, I don't care if it's Christmas. I don't care if it's Thanksgiving. I don't care if it's holidays. I'm going to kick you out. Can I ask, like, what is going to be a really naive question? Um, if you have a 100-unit building, like, in reality, how important is it that you get the rent on one unit? Um... Well, I guess in the grand scheme of things, it's not going to make you or break you. But, you know, I mean, that's the deal. You know, if you can't afford it, then I told them, look, if you can't afford it, move to a smaller apartment. I'll give you a smaller apartment. But they didn't want to move. They did not want to move. By the time Dennis was drawing up a budget for this couple, he'd been at it on and off for six years with them. And his feelings would vacillate all over the place. 
But his dad, the very man who told him how running a building hardens you, his dad never wavered in his support of the couple. My dad and I would have battles. Like, you know, we should kick him out, we should kick him out, you know. And my dad would be like, no, I don't want to kick him out, you know. And I'd be like, look, these people are way behind the rent. you got to kick him out. Dad, just get rid of these people, you know. And, you know, and we'd talk and he'd, you know, reminisce about the stories. And, you know, one of the stories he tells me is that, you know, he went to the wake for the, for the child that passed away. And um, he said to, uh, I think it was like the sister of the lady's husband, he's like, you know, I used to hear the baby crying all night long, just crying and crying and crying. And uh, the gentleman's sister's like, well, you're not going to have to hear the baby crying anymore. She turned around and walked away from him. Oh, she took it completely wrong. Yeah, my dad didn't mean it like, that kid was keeping me awake all night. Oh, thank God, you know, now I can sleep. You know, he's had kids of his own, and so, you know, he might know what it's, you know, what it's like to to see your kid in pain. So I, that for him was very, I think, and just an emotional bond where it was like, you know, these people have just been through too much. Like, we, I can't kick them out. In the end, he decided to sit down one more time and have a heart-to-heart talk with the couple. He told him he knew that they were good people. They just had a problem and they needed help. He would wait for the money they owed if the woman would just get help and go to rehab. You know, if you do this, we'll repaint your apartment. You tell me what colors you want, and when you come back from rehab, and we'll have this done for you. Like she wanted her kitchen painted like yellow or something like that. And, and so she went to rehab, and I have like a letter from her from August. Um, okay, why don't you read that? You read it? Right yeah. sure. it says, um, Well, I'm incarcerated in writing you from cell block C. You have no idea how touched I was by our talk, your caring, and generosity. The group here is very nice, as is the facility. I'm imagining what our apartment will look like upon my return. I'm so excited. I feel part of your family. You are in my prayers. Which reminds me, get your ass to church and make your ma happy. <laughs> And when you got this letter, did you feel good? Yeah, I felt really good. I was like, oh, this is great. You know, she's in there. She's getting help. But then, you know, I don't know when it was, a day or two or three later, I'm walking down the courtyard, and who do I see coming towards me but her? And, like, this was supposed to be, like, a two-week or a month-long stay. I was like, what? You know, what? I can't believe it. Why is she? And so, you know, that was, that was, you know, the beginning of the end. Shortly after that is when I filed the court papers for eviction. It was just, it was devastating. It was like, uh, you have to stand in front of the judge looking at this person who, you know, you know, I ran up and down the courtyard and maybe they threw the ball to me when I was like eight years old, you know, and now I'm sitting here in front of the judge telling them, Your Honor, you know, please remove these people forcibly from the building. You know, I'm like, that's what it comes down to. I have to do what I have to do to win this case. You know, I was mad. I wanted them out. And do you feel like this changed you? Definitely. Yeah, it definitely changed me. Now, you know, I don't like to get personally involved with tenants. Like, it's just too hard. You know, one time... These two guys moved into a two-bedroom apartment. 
And um, they were like, oh, you guys are great. Why don't you come out and have a beer with us, you know? I was like, you know what? I got, I got something to do tonight. I'm sorry. You know, maybe some other time. No, I'd, I'd, I'd really love to get a beer with you. But I had no intentions of ever going out for a beer with them. I would just, I don't know, make up an excuse or avoid it at all costs because, you know, you, just, you can't be their friends. What I try and do now is um, I try to never have to have to kick somebody out. And the way I do that is by screening and screening and screening. But that's the thing that I find interesting about this. Like, I never thought about that as, like, that it has anything to do with your feelings. This goes beyond, like, the business stuff that you're checking out all the credentials and all that sort of stuff. What you're saying is actually, like, it's too emotional. Yeah. Like, yeah. It really is. I mean, for example, I do remember, like, somebody coming in and, you know, applying for an apartment and they're like, look, my credit's all messed up. You know, I'm going through a divorce and, you know, I don't know if, you know, my, my wife messed up my credit, you know, and I was like, I don't care. You know, maybe that's the truth. Maybe that guy would have been a fine tenant, you know, maybe he would have paid his rent on time, but I just can't take that chance anymore. What would your Jesuit teacher say about that? Um, I don't know. Maybe they would be disappointed in it. And do you care? Um, no. If they were mad about it, I would say, well, the next person who rented that apartment, Father, I did try to treat them justly and fairly and ethically. Well, I'm working on a building. It's a true foundation. I'm holding up the blood stain, burning for my Lord. Our program is produced today by Alex Bloomberg and myself with Diane Cook, Jane Marie, Sarah Koenig, Lisa Pollock, and Nancy Updike. Our senior producer for today's show is Julie Snyder. Additional production on the rerun of today's show from Jessica Lessenhop, Catherine Raimondo, Stone Nelson, and Matt Tierney. Peter Roach, the super that you heard at the very beginning of the show, he retired a few years ago. He now performs in, quote, every nursing home in Northeast Pennsylvania under the name The Singin' Super. Our website, thisamericanlife.org. This American Life is delivered to public radio stations by PRX, the public radio exchange. Thanks, as always, to our program's co-founder, Mr. Tori Malatia, who has this message for any This American Life employee who's listening to the radio right now. Don't try to steal one of the light bulbs in the hallway. I know what you're thinking, but I've booby-trapped them. I'm Ira Glass. Back next week with more stories of This American Life. I never get tired. I'm working on a building for my lord. I'm going to